Your friends can only handle so much fear. They have a breaking point when adrenaline takes over, and they're not just afraid, they're petrified. <coughs> Halloween Haunt at King's Dominion will push you to the limits of fear. Come select nights through October 28th for night rides, demented creatures, and terror you've never felt before. Fear is waiting for you. Save up to $30 on tickets at kingsdominion.com. Okay, hello again. It's still December 1st, 2017. My name is John Richardson. I am speaking to you today from Toronto, Canada. Uh, and uh, once again, I have with me as a uh, special guest, Olivier Wagner, who's an international uh, CPA uh, with a great deal of experience. In fact, he lives, breathes, and eats, uh, you, you know, tax compliance for Americans abroad. Very appropriate guest because our topic this time is tax residence American style. And I can tell you that there's nothing like this anywhere in the world because you know, we just uh, did a session on tax residence earlier, and we focused on, you know, the fact of a physical presence. Uh, we focused on uh, connections to a country that show that you're really there, that you're, you know, uh, integrated into the country, into the society, using government services, you know, the kinds of things that would justify taxation. But the American Internal Revenue Code is, is really, really quite extraordinary because it operates on a very, very simple pr principle. And the principle is that those who actually live in the United States, well, absolutely. If you live in the United States, you're unquestionably a U.S. tax resident. The second principle is if you don't live in the United States, we're going to pretend you live there anyway so that you're, so that you're a tax resident. And the interesting thing is that the scheme of the Internal Revenue Code of the United States actually imposes taxation on all individuals. All individuals, not residents, but all individuals. So if you were to look, for example, at Section 1 of the Internal Revenue Code, which lays out who's subject to taxation, it would say all individuals. And that is really pretty extraordinary, and that's really pretty rich, okay, even for American extraterritorial overreach. And there's really only, now, now notice also that that is a form of deemed tax resident. You know, they have no interest in, you know, what your actual connections are to the United States as a general principle. It's all deemed tax resident, and there's only one escape from being a U.S. tax resident and one escape only and that is if you qualify as being a non-resident alien. And on that note, for the purposes of our discussion today, which will certainly include uh, how to make sure that you're a non-resident alien and escaping U.S. worldwide taxation, okay? I mean, worldwide taxation means that, you know, you have to pay tax on all forms of income, wherever it may be in the world, as opposed to territorial. But let's bring Olivier Wagner into the discussion, okay, with the theme being, I think, you know, what does it take to convert a non-resident alien into a resident alien and therefore subject to the, and if resident alien, then subject to the full force of the Internal Revenue Code, 
wherever you may live in the world. So welcome, Olivier, glad to have you back. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you for having me. And how are your clients who are U.S. citizen taxpayers doing, especially the ones who don't live in the United States? Um, well, as we see, there's quite a few provisions and um, the biggest pain comes from complying with the Internal Revenue Code and all the forms that it involves. And it's a greater pain than the actual tax owing in most cases. But is, is this welcome? I mean, for people who, uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we all agree for people who live in the United States that they probably should be paying taxes in the United States. But I mean, just think of this for a minute. You know, all these people who do not live in the United States uh, are expected to pay taxes to the United States. So another way of looking at this may be that the United States has a system of, you know, it really is non-resident taxation, isn't it? Yeah, I have one or two clients who, um, with whom I communicate in French because they don't speak English. They're U.S. citizens, but they don't speak English. They got their citizenships through their grandparents, and um, yeah. You mean they actively sought U.S. citizenship out? I, I mean that um, they have so little connection with the United States that they, they are not fluent in English. Um, but still, they are U.S. citizens, and therefore, they are U.S. taxpayers. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, just think of that. That is absolutely extraordinary, okay? In other words, this is not only is this non-resident taxation, but it's supported by the principle that you're taxed based on who you are rather than where you live or what you do. Exactly. I mean, it's really, it's really quite an amazing thing. And, and this is why, by the way, you know, there's been a lot of opposition to this in recent years with, you know, many, many uh, groups of overseas so-called Americans uh, you know, trying to get legislative change. And, you know, here we are in December 1st, 2017, and it appears that change is going to be unlikely. And, you know, I find this extraordinary because the U.S. lawmakers are well aware of this as a problem, and therefore it would seem to me that to not make these changes is for the U.S. to consciously take the position that they are going to impose non-resident taxation on the residents and citizens of other countries. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the root cause is that Americans overseas at most get to vote in the last state where they were resident. So their vote is spread throughout the U.S. and they don't really have the leverage that would cause lawmakers to care. And, and it's so much easier to pay for the budget by taxing people who really are parts of a foreign economy. Well, I think, I think that's exactly right. But, you know, what's interesting on that is that didn't historically, wasn't it the case that when Rome got into financial trouble, they simply started giving citizenship to everybody to make them taxpayers? Yeah. I mean, certainly U.S. citizenship has gotten much easier to get over the years. But in any case, so now, you know, in our last video, you know, we talked about the fact that there appeared to be internationally a general presumption against somebody being a tax resident of more than one country, right? Mm -hmm. But the one exception to that would be U.S. citizens who are mm -hmm. always tax resident of the United States 
no matter where they go in the world, they carry their U.S. tax citizenship with them, right? That's correct. But my God, what happens if by living in another country, they also become a tax resident of that other country too? I mean, are they not now tax residents of the United States and another country? That's the case. Last video, we talked about that what usually happens in a situation like that is that you would use the tax treaty tiebreaker to say, well, I'm a citizen of one country or the other, but not both. Would you recommend that your U.S. citizens use that tax treaty tiebreaker to break U.S. tax residence? No, they, uh, they might be able to use it to break residence in the other country. However, when the U.S. signs tax treaties, it includes what's called the savings clause. A savings which, clause. What's that all about? It saves the U.S. from having to apply most of the treaty to its own citizens. In other words, the savings clause is not about preventing double taxation. It's about saving the right of the United States to impose taxation on people they deem U.S. citizens wherever they live, right? Exactly. So then the savings clause really operates to guarantee double taxation, doesn't it? Um, it guarantees the U.S.'s rights to tax its citizens, which might lead into double taxation. Right. Now that, that is very, very interesting, okay, because, you know, certainly U.S. tax rules would not be the same as the tax rules of other countries necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. So let's see what might be some examples. Um, you know, whether double taxation or not, I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, one example that I think we've discussed of double taxation that I'm generally aware of would be the 3.8% Obamacare surtax. Uh, that's yes. th that's that's an example of double taxation, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and there are others, but I think what's important perhaps to understand here is that even if it's not double taxation, the effect of, you know, what we'll call uh, citizenship, or I would prefer to call it place of birth taxation generally, right, because citizenship, you get U.S. citizenship, most people get U.S. citizenship, by being born in the country. Uh, the effect of that is that, uh, you know, you're really, U.S. citizens living in other countries are really not able to get tax benefits that are available to non-U.S. citizens in those countries. Uh, for example, uh, you know, I think, a, you know, a well-worn example would be the Boris Johnson situation in the U.K., where, as I understand it, by selling his house, he had a, Boris, for those who don't know, was born in the United States. Uh, presumably born with dual citizenship, but, you know, therefore, you know, uh, because he's born in the United States, a, a U.S. citizen, unless he's relinquished. Uh, but what's interesting about that case was that his uh, sale of his house was tax-free in the U.K., but not in the United States, right? Yeah. So he was not able to benefit from uh, the tax-free uh, sale of a principal residence in the U.K., which really is a... Uh, policy decision isn't on the part of the the UK government that you know we think that this is an appropriate uh, you know way for our taxpayers to live okay so 
Clearly, there are problems, okay, uh, at least from a tax perspective, with uh, dual citizenship. Uh, if you are trying to live outside the United States, you would agree with that? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about, okay, given the problem here of the presumptive application of U.S. tax laws to every individual in the world, unless they're a non-resident alien. Let's move the discussion into that area, okay? In other words, what would it be that would convert a non-resident alien to a resident alien? In other words, you know, let's say that somebody goes to sleep one night, nice warm bed, sleeps well, happy in the knowledge that they're a non-resident alien. What would have to happen for them to wake up the next morning to find out they were a resident alien? What section of the Internal Revenue Code defines this? That's ISC 7701. Right. So let's have a look at this uh, section 7701B of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, this is a far more complex section than it appears to be on first reading. And so without getting overly technical here, Olivier, let's introduce people to the general parameters of what it says with the advice that, you know, they're either going to have to spend some time figuring, figuring this out on their own or, you know, getting professional help as appropriate. But what this says is that that uh, a non-resident alien becomes a resident alien, okay? Now, why is that important? Because it's citizens and residents who are subject to U.S. worldwide taxation. They become a resident if one of three things happens, okay? The first is that they are lawfully admitted for permanent residence to the United States. What, what does that mean, Olivier? They're lawfully admitted for permanent residence. It's commonly referred to as having a green card. Right. Now let's pause on that for one second because the language here is important. It's confusing and misleading. The legal status is lawfully admitted for permanent residence. The green card is simply the registration of that or the evidence of it. Okay, so there is, although they're obviously very contextually related, there's a difference between being lawfully admitted for permanent residence and a green card. Green cards can expire. Green cards are travel documents. But the permission, the visa, if you will, the permanent residence visa can endure. And I think it's very important at this point, lest we forget, to make people aware that if one has been lawfully admitted for permanent residence to the United States, that person does not break tax residence by simply moving out of the United States. More yes, is required. And we'll do that on a separate video. But that's a very important message. Okay, so the green card, or by that, to be more precise, the being admitted lawfully for permanent residence 
clearly makes you a tax resident. And incidentally, okay, in exactly the same way as a citizen. Okay? Second way that a non-resident alien can become a resident alien, and I, we've talked about this many times, is this so-called substantial presence test. Now, before we talk about this, this is really a deeming provision in the same way, for example, Canada would say if you live there 183 days in a year, it's a deeming provision. But as simply as you can possibly make it, okay, how does the substantial presence test operate to convert somebody who's a non-resident alien to a resident alien? Or to put it another way, how could somebody go to sleep one night and be a non-resident alien and wake up the next morning being a resident alien? So you compute days um, to which 183, including days from the year before and the year before that, but in very simple terms, if you spend one or 20 days in each of these three years, you'll be one or two days short of meeting the substantial presence test. As such, if you spend less than one or 20 days in the US every year, you did not meet the substantial presence test if you spend more than 120 days in any of these years, you should run the computation to see if you met the test or not. Oh my God, and that's exactly how you could go to sleep one night being safe. I'm a non-resident alien, and by sleeping over that one extra night, hope you slept well, you're now a resident alien and subject to worldwide taxation, right? Exactly. Yeah, so this is, you know, this is a very, very interesting problem. And, you know, from the perspective, as I said, you know, here I am in Toronto, Canada. And Canada, that means cold winters. Uh, you know, you have all these, uh, you know, these Canadians, and I see them all the time, who decide they want to go to places like Florida, you know, for the winter. Now, make no mistake about it. You know, I mean, Canada has very, very predatory tax laws, okay? In fact, I would consider Canada to be a world leader in predatory taxation, all right, you know, probably along with the United States. But, um, you know, the point is it's very difficult to break tax residence with Canada. So what would happen in a situation, and by the way, to be clear, I'm not advising anybody do this, but theoretically, what would happen if a Canadian snowbird, who absolutely positively is a Canadian tax resident, all right, goes to Florida and spends 150 days, for example, in Florida for three consecutive years, what would the situation then be? So by default, it would become um, a U.S. resident, it would become a U.S. taxpayer. Okay, so let's now, pause now for one second. So your view is that if he or she were to spend 150 days in each of the three preceding years, that they would trigger the substantial presence test. Is that correct? The substantial presence test would be triggered, but there would be a ways around it. Okay, to so let's just okay, so let's just hold for one sec. So, so we, the person says, "I love the winters in Canada are, are are just too cold. I was not built for cold weather. Therefore, I will spend 150 days in Florida for each of three years." So now, what's happened? Oh my God! this person appears, at least initially, to be a taxpayer of both Canada and the United States. Sounds awful, it, doesn't it? What would you advise yes. that person? Yes, and he would be if he didn't do anything about it. Um, 
some venues available to him are the closer connection test. All right, so closer connection test. Now let's talk about that. Now the closer connection test is basically taking the position that you have a closer connection to another country. Well, obviously, correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, the effect of using the closer connection test is that you are not a U.S. resident for tax purposes. Not that you are, but we're going to let you off. But that you are not, okay, a, uh, a resident for tax purposes in the United States. Is that correct? Yes. Um, there's a few conditions to be met. You need to have spent fewer than 180 actual days in the current year. And it needs to be done in a timely file return. Okay. So, uh, okay. So the first point is that if you're able to successfully use the closer connection test, what that would mean is that you are not, okay, it's essentially a defense to the accusation of being a U.S. resident, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So it's not an exception, it's a defense. You do not become a U.S. tax resident. That's correct. Place, right? Okay, and I think, I, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think that is an important distinction. What are some other defenses to becoming a U.S. tax resident? In other words, what I'm looking for, what would be some things that on the one hand would trigger the substantial presence test, but on the other hand, there are some built-in defenses in the statute to keep you from becoming a resident? What would be some other ones? So, again, in the case of a snowbird, if he couldn't use the closer connection test because he filed his return late, for instance, um, he could still take a treaty position and um, and use the treaty to say that he was a resident of Canada and therefore okay. not of so, the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. But now to take the treaty position, as we've discussed, that you can only take the treaty position if you agree that you are a tax resident of, of both countries, right? Initially, yes. Right. So you're and agreeing you're a tax resident, but you're saying, well, now we're going to use the treaty to allocate the rights. But uh, isn't it the case that in addition to uh, the closer connection test, isn't it true that, for example, uh, I mean, what about a student, for example? You know, they go to the United States, they trigger the substantial presence test. Uh, isn't there a provision in that section that keeps them from becoming a, a U.S. tax resident or, is, or not? Yes, they're referred to as exempt individuals. The two main categories are students, diplomats, some sort of teachers. I mean, I mean thank God for that because can you imagine, I mean, you know, the U.S. is a, you know, is a significant number of, of the world's best educational, you know, opportunities, universities. And that. Can you imagine if just the simple fact of you know, being a student in a U.S. Uh, graduate program or something, you know, converted you into a U.S. tax resident? I mean, that would be, yeah, you know, thank God that doesn't happen, right? Yeah, it works on a per-day basis, and it's tied to your immigration status. So the days you spent in the U.S. as a student would be excluded if you were in the U.S. as a tourist during the same year. Um, these days would not be excluded. Right. Now, this is an interesting danger because, I mean, we'll do another discussion of reporting requirements and that sort of thing, but imagine the following situation. So somebody uh, who lives in Canada uh, 
you know, whose uh, parents, uh, you know, who's say the shareholder and family business and that sort of thing, uh, goes to the United States for school and spends three years in school or four years in school. I guess does not trigger the uh, substantial presence test, okay, because of the student exemption. Uh, but let's say the person then stays, no longer a student. Now from that point on, I'm assuming the days count towards meeting the substantial presence test. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So what happens if we have this scenario where the person has all of these Canadian assets, the family assets in Canada, the person uh, finishes school, the days start counting towards the substantial presence test, person meets the substantial presence test, what does that mean practically? Person becomes a U.S. tax resident, so subject to tax on worldwide income, agreed? Um, yes, if, if that person was also a tax resident of Canada, we would have the, um, the remedies discussed for the snowbird. But if he was not a tax resident of Canada, then, then it would definitely be um, a tax resident of the U.S. And to be a tax resident of the U.S. involves much more than just paying taxes. I mean, aren't there incredibly significant reporting requirements? Yes, and that's one of the advantages of the closer connection over the tax treaty. The tax treaty will uh, get you out of the tax, but it will not get you out of the reporting requirements. Yeah, yeah, again, and this is why I think this is, you know, we talked about this earlier. This is why I think this is an incredibly important distinction, okay, because if you're able to not become a U.S. tax resident, you don't have the reporting requirements. And by the way, you know, if anybody's watching this and thinks, so what about the reporting requirements, wait until the next video or something. I mean, it's, 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 it is just over the top, okay? It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and penalty-laden, confusing. It's, it's, it's just simply un it's unbelievable overreach. Um, but again, this is, I think this is so, so important, right, which is why... Uh, you know, you want to be able to make use of things like the closer connection test because they will prevent you from being a resident, which means you don't have the reporting requirements. But if you use the tax treaty, again, you are accepting that you're a tax resident. And therefore, although, you know, you may not have to pay the tax because that's what the treaty covers, okay, you know, you're, you're still subject to these reporting requirements. I mean, you know, a horrifying situation would be, you know, uh, I mean, you know, it's common in Canada and most other countries of the world, you know, to carry on businesses through these small business corporations, not so common in the United States. But, you know, from a U.S. perspective, these are foreign corporations. So what happens is that, you know, after finishing school and meeting the substantial presence test and deciding he's a U.S. tax resident, all of a sudden he's got a reporting obligation to report all the family businesses and everything to the IRS, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's incredibly significant. I mean, you know, another interesting, uh, you know, reporting requirement that just, you know, crossed my mind was lately, you know, they, the, all I've been reading this week, other than U.S. tax, all I've been reading this week in the media is tax one way or the other. You know, we have U.S. tax reform, which is a more theoretical thing, and then we have the announcement of the engagement of uh, Meghan Markle as a U.S. citizen to, uh, you know, Prince Harry. And, you know, and, and uh, I was reading, on, you know, in one article, oh, my God, I mean, you know, presumably, uh, you know, the prince gave Miss Markle uh, an engagement ring. 
And uh, would there be a chance that that engagement ring, because he's a U.S., would, that, would the value of that have to be reported to the IRS? It appears to be more of a gift than an accession to wealth um, treated as income. I'm sorry? It no, appears just to as be more of information a gift return. Isn't than... there a requirement that... Now, the prince is foreign, isn't he? Prince Harry be foreign person. Making yeah. a gift of an engagement ring to a U.S. person, Meghan Markle. It doesn't take much for a diamond ring to be over $100,000 these days, I don't think. Oh, yeah, then it would be reported on Form 3520, but think it would it. Think still... Think of it. The engagement ring, a requirement to report the value of the engagement ring to the U.S. government. You know, I mean, that is, that is really extraordinary, isn't it? And... Uh, and the, the, the engagement will, wouldn't be taxed per se. Its, its value would have to be reported. Would you like to report your engagement ring to the U.S. government? No, I keep them under one thousand dollars, but that's just. Uh, yeah, me. I mean, I think this is an extremely important point. Okay, that if you're a non-U.S. citizen wanting to give an engagement ring to a U.S. citizen, by God, make sure the value is less than a hundred thousand dollars, right? Yeah, and tell her about it because she needs to know because she has to report if it's if it's more. Well, I mean, this is just the beginning of, of, of her problems, I think. But I'll leave that to you. You know, you're the CPA. Give her a call and say, hey, uh, you know. I just wanted to introduce you to some of your reporting requirements. Um, okay. Now, coming back to this, you know, this whole idea. So I think what, what's important for people to understand is that the U.S. tax code, you know, is really not at least theoretically based on residence, okay? It's based on being a living, breathing person. The presumption being that all living carbon life forms are U.S. tax subjects, and the only way to get out of that is if you're a non-resident alien. And the definition for what converts a non-resident alien to a resident alien is found in Section 7701B of the Internal Revenue Code. And so I think that, you know, it's like, you know, that American Express ad, don't leave home without the card. I think that you know, probably that all people of the world should not leave home without Section 7701B of the Internal Revenue Code, or perhaps they have it hardwired into their brain. Very, very, very serious problem. What are some other issues, um, you know, with the whole, uh, the, whole US, uh, the whole U.S. tax thing? And how have you seen that affecting people? How does it affect your clients? I mean, are, are, they, are many of them looking at renouncing U.S. citizenship, or...? Yes, yes. I, my clients are mostly U.S. citizens with, um, with a large share of them who renounce U.S. citizenship, yes. So, so you're finding that the problems of complying with, the, with these rules are severe enough so that people really are renouncing? Yeah, and usually it's, it's really the compliance issue that's, that's leading them to renounce more than the actual tax owing. So they're, so they're really not paying U.S. tax anyway, as I understand, in many cases. Is that correct? In, in most cases, yes. As you mentioned, uh, Canada has a fairly substantial tax rate, which is uh, greater than the U.S. tax rate, at least greater than the federal portion that they're subject to. And as such, the foreign tax credits 
allows them to not pay tax to the U.S. in yeah. most cases. Right. I mean, so so really, I mean, I think for Americans abroad, there's two what I would call tax mitigation provisions, two general ones. The one would be, you know, as you point out, the foreign tax credit rules, which basically means that say somebody makes, you know, uh, X amount of dollars, uh, they pay X dollars tax in Canada, uh, very high X dollars tax in Canada. Uh, and what the U.S. would do is say, yeah, so, you know, we're going to tax you on that X dollars, but, you know, we're also going to give you a tax credit for those X dollars that you paid in Canada, you know, which is generally higher. So for certain types of income, uh, you know, it's form hell, okay, it's expensive, the compliance is expensive because, you know, very, very, very few people can do a U.S. tax return on their own. Uh, but they end up not paying tax. And the second way... Notice that works very well because Canada is a high tax country or higher than the U.S. But mm -hmm. what would you say to somebody uh, in Saudi Arabia, you know, for example, that I think I'm right in saying that Saudi Arabia does not have income tax. So a U.S. citizen in Saudi Arabia would, in effect, have to pay U.S. tax because there would be no tax paid in Saudi Arabia to generate a credit against the U.S. tax owing. How would that person deal with the situation? It really depends on their profile. Um, there is still a provision called the friend earned income exclusion, which does not require the payment of right. tax. Right, yeah. So how does that work? Foreign earned income, I, probably the last word gives it away, exclusion. So does that mean that you can exclude a certain amount of taxable income from abroad? Um, yes, its scope is more limited than the foreign tax credit. It's limited to earned income, as its name specifies. And, and there's also a maximum dollar amount, uh, 102,100. 102,000. I understand that's indexed to inflation. It is. It most, is. most U.S. tax things are indexed to inflation. Actually, you know they started this year to index their penalties to inflation as well. Do you know that FBAR penalties are now indexed to inflation? No. Did they index the, um, the threshold under which you need to file? Not at all. Not at all. It's still $10,000, okay? You know, so because of inflation, more and more people have to file. But the amount that you have to pay for penalties has absolutely been indexed to inflation. So, for okay. example, the standard $10,000 FBAR penalty, okay, is now something like $12,000, right? I mean, doesn't that it strike you as... It would be nice if they were to index the 10000 which was set in the 70s, um, to whatever it's, it really should be. But, but, but why would they do that? Isn't the goal to make more and more people subject to penalties? I mean, they, you know, they don't call this the F-bar fundraiser for no reason. Yeah. But, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, the penalties, you know, for this type of thing have actually been indexed to inflation. And, you know, I mean, the penalties that, that Americans abroad are subject to are potentially, I, I say potentially, uh, absolutely extraordinary. The problem is that the laws are so complicated, the only thing anybody can understand when they read it is, in fact, the penalty provision. Uh, but, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a very, very interesting problem. 
So, yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I certainly see a lot of people uh, renouncing U.S. citizenship, uh, and it's clearly not for tax reasons because they know they're not paying U.S. tax. But the, yep. you know, the uh, compliance burden is, and it's much, it's more than it being expensive. Uh, I mean, w the way I perceive it is that it's largely because people really don't know what's required of them. You know, and they're always, mm -hmm. you know, sort of living in fear of, you know, of having missed this or that. I mean, you know, this is your world. I mean, you know, you understand you know, as well as anybody, because it's such a specialty area, you know, how to keep how to keep these people compliant. But would you agree that, you know, you can go online any day of the week and read different things about this, that, and the other thing? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And you can have a U.S. citizen read an article um, about investing in the U.S. in some Canadian newspaper and completely miss the fact that the article was written for non-U.S. citizens. For non-resident, you mean it's written for non-resident aliens? Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, actually, on that note, I mean, you know, the United States has very, very attractive tax laws to encourage investment for non-resident aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it has, you know, obviously a very strong, efficient capital markets, uh, you know, uh, very well-organized, well-developed, credible legal system. I mean, it's probably a very, very good place for non-resident aliens to invest. Uh, the, it's very difficult, though, for Americans abroad who are subject to the U.S. tax system and are, you know, fundamentally, you know, see themselves as citizens of other countries primarily to do that. Yeah. But, I mean, let's say, you know, as we bring the whole issue of today of, you know, U.S., some people call it citizenship tax, base taxation. I don't like calling it that because it's not descriptive of what it really is. It makes it sound like it's sort of patriotic. Also, a lot of people in the U.S. don't make a distinction between citizenship and residence uh, because the whole idea, for example, you know, uh, is that, you know, they, they want to live there. Um, you know, I think that a more a more accurate description might be place of birth taxation because by being born in the United States, you're a U.S. citizen, you know, even if you've been whisked out of the country immediately. Uh, perhaps it should be called, another phrase I've heard for it is taxation-based citizenship instead of citizenship-based taxation. Or, you know, what I think the most accurate description of it is uh, is non-resident taxation, right? It's really a way to you know, impose full taxation on the citizens and residents of other countries. Which of those, which of those terms do you think most accurately captures the idea? Do you think citizenship-based taxation is very descriptive of what it really is? When you understand it, yes, I, I do get your point that uh, without more context, it might be misleading. Makes it sound like it's sort of patriotic, you know, the right thing to do. Yeah. Do you like paying taxes to countries you don't live in? No. <laughs> I think few people do. What do you think of the descriptive phrase non-resident taxation? Well, it's... They tax residents too, so it's... Um... 
I think taxation-based citizenship is um, is a little unheard of, but it's it's descriptive at the same time. I'm sorry. Uh, I, could you repeat that about taxation-based citizenship? You like that one, or you don't like it? Yes, I like it. You like it? Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I, I mean, you know, and, and we'll do another uh, show on this at some point, but you know. The great thing about U.S. citizenship is um, that really U.S. citizens have two all U.S. citizens are dual citizens at least, you know, whether they have another citizen or not, citizenship or not, because, you know, since 2004, they've really had something called tax citizenship as well, because you can't give up U.S. citizenship, you know, without going through separate hurdles, you know, that are mandated in the Internal Revenue Code, right, or at least you can't. You can give it up, but you can't do it in a way that ends the tax obligations, you know, without doing certain things, right? That's all. Yeah. But more on that later. Well, tax season is coming. Do you think that there will be any benefits for Americans abroad, your client base, coming out of tax reform? What do you think? Yes or no? Limited, limited. Closer to no. Uh huh. Closer to no? When you say limited, is there anything you see that would be a benefit to them? I mean, increasing the standard deduction would help every taxpayer. So, I mean, it won't really have an impact, but I cannot give you a, a straight no, knowing that standard deduction will be increased, for instance. Well, after all of the lobbying and all the good work done by so many different groups, you know, in the area of trying to educate and, you know, get changes to FATCA and taxation-based citizenship, it appears that, uh, you know, that it's gone nowhere at all and that, uh, you know, people are going to wake up in t January of 2018 with, in a sense, a bigger set of problems because, you know, it's been the result of a conscious decision to continue to impose taxation on people who live in other countries. But we'll certainly develop all these ideas in future videos. Olivier, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, I mean, if you're a U.S. international CPA, presumptively very busy day. And we yep. will connect again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.